when the angel asked Nephi, knowest thou the condescension of God? The answer to that question contains some of the most powerful doctrinal information that we have in terms of the plan of salvation. Do we know and understand the condescension of God? And what does that mean for us? And if this is the thing that sheddeth forth uh, into the hearts of men, what does that say about our responsibility and our own condescension into the hearts of men and those around us? Join us today for an intriguing look at our own lowering and descending, our own condescension of God. And welcome to another Monday Morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, begin. Uh, again, we are still uh, in the process of uh, videoing, and we're getting hit from the side here, and uh, ultimately, I think you're going to, very soon you'll be able to see those on YouTube, and you'll be able to tell you that they're there. Now, um, we're, we're recording this, obviously, in December, and uh, as we're rolling into the holidays, so I thought it would be appropriate. There are some testimonies of the Savior that you find in the Book of Mormon. And we're running right into it history-wise. We're running right into it in, in going forward and studying. So um, I wanted to start with uh, Lehi. And uh, Lehi, in, in the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon, he's going to start telling us about the Savior right away. He's going to say, And thus be never come with the Spirit, Nephi says he was carried away in a vision, uh, even so that he saw the heavens open up, and he thought he saw God sitting on his throne, surrounded by numerous concourses of angels. Then he says, And it came to pass that he saw one descending out of the midst of heaven, and beheld that his luster was above that of the sun at noonday, and we know there were twelve others following him. Now, isn't it interesting that if our first introduction is uh, Nephi and Lehi's um, testimony of the Savior, we're not starting with the nativity story there, are we? What if, if this could be symbolic, but if this is Lehi being able to see the future, what is he seeing when he sees that he saw one descending out of the midst of heaven and that his luster was above the sun at noonday? Could be the second coming. There you go. Why? And bright, in other words, he's seen the Savior come down, but he's seen the Savior come down most likely to his descendants. 
So we're starting with that view. Now that could have been just part of the vision. But that, it's interesting that it matches so closely what his descendants 600 years later would ultimately see uh, in him. So, so Lehi is being able to see the Savior as he's going to appear uh, to his people. But I remember talking about 12 others coming. Yeah, the 12 others either either follow him or the 12 others because there were immediately, he does organize 12 right. w- when he gets on the ground. So, so I say it's almost like a mix of are we seeing vision or are we seeing the future or some mix of that, right? Um, now, this vision then inspires Nephi to, to do what? He wants to see the same thing. He's, he's very, very curious. So Nephi is going to say, well, let's go to, there was so much here, I thought we'd just hop over for just a second and go to I'm going to do that. There we go. Okay, scrolling down here, okay? Nephi is going to say, It came to pass, I desired to know the things my father had seen, and believing that the Lord was able to make them known, what does he do? He's just pondering, right? He's going to think, he's going to ponder these things in his heart. Okay? Now, as he's pondering, he's caught away, exceedingly high mountain, and the angel's going to say, Yeah, what do you want to see? Well, I want to see the tree. Tree's pretty cool. I, I, want, I want to see the tree. Um, and the angel sa- says, uh, Thou knowest that I believe... All, well, I, he says, I, I believe all the words of my father. So I know there's a tree to be seen. I want to see this. Okay. And so he's going to, the angel is going to break out in praise and ex- excitement that he wants to, to do that. Now, he's going to say, okay, I'm going to, I will show you this thing and it's going to be a sign. And it's interesting that he's going to indicate the tree is a sign. Okay, keep, the, keep that in mind. Okay. This will be a sign. Because uh, thou, thou shalt also behold a man descending out of heaven, and him ye shall witness. And after you have witnessed him, you shall bear, bear record that he's the Son of God. So he's also going to have a, a witness of the Savior, and they're going to see him as a man coming down out of heaven. Ultimately, he will see that. Okay? Uh, now, these are Old Testament people. Guys, when they're picturing God and God's going to come descending out of heaven in brightness and glory, wouldn't that fit? That's who, that's who Jehovah, Jehovah is. If he's going to come and visit his people, he would come in great glory and great power. 
But he'd be a cloud or a bright light. Yeah, yeah, it comes the um, well, the, uh, the the Shinar yeah. that, that filled the the tabernacle. Uh, but if he's actually going to come in person, he'd look more like probably a mount, top of Mount Sinai, lightnings, thunderings. Okay. Okay. So great, great power. Now, so here you can go. Okay. So first thing, so watch how the watch how the angel works this. So yeah, so I I looked and I saw the tree, and it was really cool. It was uh, the beauty thereof was exceeding all the beauty, and the whiteness thereof did excite, exceed the whiteness of the driven snow, because he had so much experience with snow. <laughs> now, I, I will say that there is there is skiing in Israel. Uh, but if you're going to go skiing in Israel, you're going to have to go way up. You know, it's gonna, not going to last long. And it's going to be way up in the mountains, up by Mount Tabor, way up high. Okay. Uh, Lehi, so we don't know how much experience Nephi has with the driven snow. Uh, it could be that this is something that was added. I don't know. I just think that's interesting. But it's really, really white. Okay. Uh, by the way, who did have experience with a lot of the whiteness of driven snow? Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith did, yes. That's why I've wondered if a little bit this, this might have been some of Joseph's stuff coming in. Because the first generation of the church and Joseph would have had a lot of experience with really, really white. This, this, is this the only reference to snow in the Book of Mormon? I think it is. Can I, I can't think of another. Can you? I I can't. I, I mean, it seems to me like a lot of people who geography the Book of Mormon really focus on the fact that snow is never mentioned. Uh, clearly, it's mentioned here, but not as a, an environmental issue that they're dealing with. Yeah, and that's why they're always trying to put it in tropical climes because everybody's always running around in loincloths and having all the kinds of diseases. Yeah? I kind of wonder if a lot of this, I mean, we get frustrated between languages and the meanings of words between people but I wonder if a lot of the revelations that these came was more of a mental feeling and look and see what's going on and not so much the written language or the spoken word and that was Joseph's way of describing what he saw it could easily be that's why that's why we have to remember always uh, it's one of those discussions that we've had before and I don't want to get too far into it today but I just find it interesting that for everything it took to get the plates to Joseph Smith <laughs> it's just interesting he doesn't use them that the, really so much of the Book of Mormon is a revelation that comes through his mind with the, with the plates covered up so a lot of what's going to come through and this might be one of those times that sort of makes some sense Maybe everybody in here hasn't got the catalyst idea about how the plates might have been translated. Yeah, well, there, yeah, there's... Yes. There, 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 there's two ways of assuming the Book of Mormon was translated. One was it's a word-for-word -word account, word-by-word-by-word. Word by word. That would be Royal Skousen and the word print people. And then the other one is the catalyst idea, and that is that... Uh, the plates were there to provide inspiration and guidance, and they're there, but the actual language is going to be some mix 
But it's ca- it's 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 inspiring the inspiration on part of the Savior. Well, artist pictures of Joseph translating. He's got the plates uncovered and he's following down <laughs> the line by line. Yeah. And change, or translating at least thought by thought. But in in a lot of instances, the plates were covered by an oil cloth, and he didn't even. Yeah. He just had his, he had them there with him. Yeah. At times when uh, Martha, Martha, no. Sister Harris, I'm trying to remember her first name. Anyway, Sister Harris was there. They were hidden in the woods, <laughs> you know. So sometimes he's translating, and they're there's some distance from him. But can I, can I just say something about this vision of the yeah. tree, though? Yeah. In the vision, of, I, I find this so so similar to our own experience. In the vision of the tree, the angel asks him, "Does he believe everything that his father told him?" And he says, yes, I do. I believe everything my father told me. And then when he gets shown the vision, the angel says, well, your father didn't see this and your father (laughs) didn't notice that and stuff like that. And it's kind of like when we read the scriptures and we know that there are flaws even in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. But if we believe what we read, the Spirit then can give us greater information. I think so. And translate for us really what we're hearing and what we're feeling. Great point. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes people have pointed at the Book of Mormon and said um, there are things like uh, horses in the Book of Mormon. There are things like they're, and they're riding horses and they're, and they're using swords Metal, metal, metal swords, and we're not finding any geographical. Well, uh, that's not what I mean, though. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, yeah. there's actually errors in the way things are, are said and done that uh, wouldn't necessarily match. Yeah. You know. Mormon or Well, he says if there are flaws, which they are, they're the mistakes of men. Yeah. He's going to tell us that it is, right? Okay, but in this case, so he's being able to see this, and he's going, I see that it is, and then he's being shown the tree, and he's going to say that the tree is most precious above all. Now, so what is it you're really desiring? Well, I know that this is symbolic. What's the interpretation of this? Okay, now look at, look at where he's going to go with this. And I have to think that this is one of those. I try, I try and picture sometimes people in the in the scriptures and their reaction to stuff. And sometimes we just read. If we read too fast, we don't take in that these are mortals looking at stuff and and experiencing and reacting to stuff that they're learning and being shown and what they're experiencing. And I, I love this. It's like okay, I want to know the interpretation. Yep, gotcha. Okay, now. It came to pass that I looked, and I beheld the great city of Jerusalem. So he's seen that, and I see other cities. Okay, then I beheld the city of Nazareth. Now I don't know if he ever made it to Nazareth. Um, if if Dad was traveling a little bit, he might have taken him north into the Galilee. I don't I don't know. Uh, but he's at least having some understanding either from his own knowledge or from the spirit that says, yep, this is Nazareth. Okay. Now, in Nazareth, he's going to see uh, a virgin 
uh, and she was exceedingly white and fair. Now, let me pause for a sec because I need you to start seeing some parallels that are going to kick in here. What else did he say was exceedingly white and fair? The tree. The tree. Okay. Uh, and he's going to kind of bear down on that here. Okay. Now. The tree is white and fair like driven snow and she's just white and fair. And Jewish. Compared to a person. Yeah. But he's going to say... And I said to him, what do you see? I see a virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. What else is beautiful among everything else? The tree. Okay? He's going to start drawing some parallels here. Now, so, wow, the, I'm, I'm young. This is a beautiful girl that I'm seeing. She's in Nazareth. Man, she might be the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Now, I don't know how experienced he is, how many Jerusalem dances he's going to on a Saturday, Friday night. And then comes the great question. Okay, you're seeing her, you're experiencing this, and you're going to say, do you know the condescension of God? What would you mean by that? Do you know the condescension of God? And he's going <laughs> to... I know Jehovah. I'm an Old Testament Law of Moses guy. I, I know that... What, what does he know? He doesn't know all things, but he knows that God loves his children. Yeah, that's, that's about where I am. Okay? I know that he loveth his children... I know that Jehovah has come in and, and protected Israel when they were righteous and didn't protect them like what's just happening in Jerusalem. Um, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I don't know the meaning of all things. And he could have said, that's kind of an interesting question. <laughs> I, I'm looking at Nazareth. I'm seeing this virgin. And now you want to know the condescension of God. But I don't know. That's okay. Interesting side note. Okay. Now, I love this. Here, here, comes the, here comes the statement. Behold, the virgin thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. Why would that be a bit of a, could potentially be a big surprise? When Lehi sees God, what does he see? A man descending out of heaven. The angels already told him, you're going to see God descending from heaven. Okay. Do you know the condescension of God? No. Here is, let me show you something. This virgin you're looking at is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. Why would that be a shocker? Telling him that God is going, that Jesus Christ is going to have flesh. He's going to be a man. And not just to say, no, I knew he was going to descend from heaven. Right, but he's actually going to have a body. Yeah. On the earth. And start. Start with a starter kit. Start with a starter kit. As a baby. But he's also telling him that she's not really the mother of the Son of God, she's just the mother of the Son of his flesh. Yes. Right. But at the very least, I have to accept that my view of Jehovah 
I, I'm, a, I'm a Jewish kid. I've, we did Passover. We know the rumblings on Sinai. We know how great he is. We do the miracle. And you're telling me that this God will take on flesh as a baby. He will be born. That would be a shocker. Would it, would it not? Yeah. Um, look up condescension. I, please, okay. please. Um, one definition. Voluntarily descend from one's rank or dignity in relation with an inferior. Which, and the angel is saying, you know, do you know the condescension? He's, gonna, he's from here, yes, but we saw him coming in glory. You're saying he's first going to come as a baby? Now, condescension means, uh, another way to look at this is uh, going to come down kind of and be lowered among, like everybody else. So, so when Joseph... When, when, when Gabriel comes to Joseph and says, uh, fear not, Mary hasn't just kind of been fooling around here. Mary, something marvelous has happened. She's going to give birth to a son, and he will be called what? Jesus. Jesus, meaning what? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God is with us. But condescending, I mean, when people say, you know, you're, you're condescending to me, yes. it's like you're talking down to me. And so a lot of people, I think when they read this, Americans today, uh, they think, they, they, first of all, know, condescending. You know God talks down to people. You know? Yeah, they could. It's, not, it's, it's actually, God reaches down and, and comes to our level so that he can then lift this back up. What we're going to find as we're going through here, and this is going to kind of be our theme all the way through, that condes if condescension means, in a negative sense, the way that is used more colloquially today is, I'm here and you are there, so I'm talking down to you. But condescension means, I was here, and now it's going to be a down thing. That there's a, there's a directional thing here, that God was here, he's coming down among us. That's what, that, that God is lowering self, is lowering himself to be born as a baby. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's kind of amazing. That's amazing knowledge to say that God is going to, this great God of Sinai is going to be born as a baby. That's, uh, if, if you're listening closely, you can hear the sound of a paradigm shifting. <laughs> It's just sliding. I was, I was picturing this God here, but this great God who's still the creator would come down to earth and condescend. And so probably, if we were, if we were being saying it today, probably another word, condescension, might be used uh, as opposed to, I would guess if the Flintstones song was being written today, they wouldn't say, we're, we're going to have a gay old time. <laughs> probably would use a different word. Okay. In this case, condescension means coming from up here to down here. But it means, so I've been thinking about different synonyms for this moment. The great lowering or great descending or great leveling. It's, it's coming from up here to down here. Yeah. So Ammon, the son of Messiah, I think he gives a great example of this condescension when he's teaching the Lamanites. 
he's, he finds out, he's first asked them where they're off at. And then he comes to where they are and teaches them the principles that they're ready to learn. And I think the big mistake that we make when we are trying to teach the gospel to our friends or others, our children, mm -hmm. whatever, is we, we try to take them from where they are or where we think they are to where our greatest aspirations, the things that we've, the secrets that we think we've learned. And it's overwhelming. Yeah. You, you can't do that to somebody and expect that... Got to start where they are. Yeah. So that's why the idea of, of a condescending God, or descend, a descending God, a lowering God, is one that's coming down to us, is going to be among us, and this theme will get carried along uh, a lot all the way through. Okay? Now... Here, here's how this is going to go then. He, he, so he sees, he sees that he's still kind of ass, assessing that. Came to pass, he's carried away in the spirit. And then look what he sees. I looked and beheld the virgin again bearing a child in her arms. So now he's actually seeing the great creator, the Jehovah, and he's seeing her as, as a child. Okay? Now... Now do you get it? Well, yeah. It, yea, it's the love of God which... And then there's another interesting word that is used. Uh, and, and I find this, in, of all the words that could be used, yea, it is the love of God that does what? Sheddeth. Pause. What do we know that gets shed? Snake skin. What else? Blood. Is blood going to be shed? Was was there blood shed in in the Savior's sacrifice? Where was blood first shed? In birth by. Mary. So in his coming to earth, uh, first of all, there was blood shed to get him here. And then there would be blood shed to get us back, if, if you will. Okay, I just think the idea of this idea of a shedding of blood is that it's interesting that Mary shed blood first to provide the way for the, for the great atonement to happen and then he would shed his blood uh, and that she would have that experience. Um, when you think about him shedding his blood, do you think more about him praying in the garden or do you think about the spear in his side? Or do you think about the thorns on his head? It's a good question. What do you think? I think about the garden. Yeah, when, one of these days we're going to have to have a discussion on there because I think there's a discussion to be made about where the majority of the atonement takes place. As Latter-day Saints in the time of Talmadge, we've said the garden. 
the Book of Mormon is going to focus almost exclusively on the cross. I think the majority of atonement takes place in individual people. I think that could happen as well. Okay, yeah. This is making me think maybe slightly different direction. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of my goal. <laughs> you talk about life's blood. Yes. And giving, you know, uh, giving the gift of life is like shedding the blood. So that happens in all births, that happened in him, that happened in the atonement. And I think that all, I'm trying to think. My thoughts, yeah, yes, into, yes, you know, to focus, but it's it's like you know, this is the deepest part of himself that he could give for us, and that mothers can give to their children, and that we can spread that life's blood, you know, whether it's actual blood or the spiritual blood within us that we can share with others. We're all here because of the shedding of blood. We return because of the shedding of blood. I, I just—it's it, interesting to me that that's—it's—it's it, it's interesting how that goes. Well, and then the other interesting thing is, from what I understand, the resurrected body doesn't have blood, but it's filled like with the spirit. Probably not. I mean, we don't know. And so I. Partly Pratt thought he knew, but. A lot of people claim that. Too. Yeah. That, right. Right. I've heard, that was my study in school was the study of blood. Yeah, oh, yeah. I remember our teacher who was called the because I learned at BYU was saying, yeah, so we're doing all this study for what? <laughs> and that's for a year and a half. But I think it's, it's like it's like that love and then, you know, that it's all related to not all things are created spiritually before physically and so you have physical manifestations but they all lead to spiritual manifestations, spiritual meanings. And seeing the symbolism helps us, I think, tie those together because you're watching this thing, okay? He's going to say, the, the angel's saying to Nephi, you want to know the interpretation? Let me give you a sign. And the sign's going to be the in interpretation. I'm going to give you a sign of the Savior. And so what is the enduring image that he's going to have the, 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 the Savior came. Mother carrying a child. That's, that's the image. And it's enough for him to make the leap and go, oh, well, that's, that's the love of God. Wow. Okay. Um, by the way, for the shepherds, what would be the symbol or the sign of the coming of the Savior? Angels no, no, for the shepherds. He's in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's a symbol. Yeah, they're getting the idea of that lamb. That symbol. One more. What is it for the? Uh, we're going to talk about it more next week. What's going to be the symbol for the Nephites that the Savior has come? Light. A day, a night of light. In other words, he's going to give us symbols that say the Savior has come. And to a certain extent, I'm going to, I'm going to say our, our witness is our symbol sometimes that the Savior has come to us. Yeah, Jim? Yeah, so the, the shepherds, I've had it explained to me, and, and I don't 100% know this is true, but I believe it, 
Is that the shepherds were the shepherds at the temple flock? Uh, the Migdal eater. Because yeah. There was there would have been no other flocks that would have been close to where they were staying. And those shepherds at the temple flock were priests, and it was their job to inspect the offerings, the lambs, to make sure they were without spot and without blemish. It's a pretty good chance they were Levite shepherds, but again, we're we're, we're speculating. But it is a speculation, but yeah, but but they would have had a symbol that would make sense to them. Yeah. Well, and also to go along with that, I mean, my understanding is that they would wrap those baby lambs in swaddling cloths to keep them from getting so they couldn't get a broken leg or anything. Yeah, and so. And they would put them in that manger. And that, so when when they saw a baby in a manger in swaddling clothes instead of a lamb, right. that that was a sign. Okay, so if, if God or an angel wants to give us a symbol of the coming of Christ, what's he going to use? Something we understand. Something we understand, our language. He, that, that's, he's got to speak our language so that we can tie this together. So there's an image here. Uh, and I, st- I started to go down this road. I don't want to spend too much time. What This image of a virgin carrying a baby, uh, there was some images floating around at that time. One is in Egypt. Of uh, If you see any statues of uh, Isis carrying Horus, it's an image of a woman carrying, ca- carrying a baby. It's just interesting that those images, whether I didn't want to spend a lot of time because I don't know whether Nephi saw those. But this makes sense to Nephi. He sees it and goes, I get it. The, what is the tree? It's the love of God that sheddeth forth its heart, itself in the hearts of the children of men. And, and he's going to get this. Now, I want to come back just a little bit, guys, because I, I really think the question that is actually more applicable, and you're going to start to see this, comes in the, in the initial question. Do you know the condescension of God? Do you know the lowering? Do you know the descending of God? Because it's interesting, in God's symbolism, one of the things that he uses is directions. Anytime you go into uh, uh, Egypt or Israel or even Peru or the Yucatan or Native Americans, they all follow cardinal directions. What is a north, south, east, west? And they will lay down the pyramids. They will lay down their buildings. Everything lays along the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. Okay. One of the things that happens, though, is not just the cardinal directions vertically, but it's horizontal. What is up and what is down? Everything comes up and then... And then what is it that's coming down? And where are we supposed to be in the up and the down? Okay? So I want, I want to take this idea of the symbolism and the condescension of God to see what... Uh, because part of what's happening here is... Hold on here. Get back here. If he's looking at this, if he's looking at Mary and he's seeing her and through the shedding of her blood that becomes the possibility of a savior for us so that he can shed his blood for us. 
But look at the condescension of Mary as a, as a way to kind of start. You start thinking I'm, I'm going Catholic. I'm not. <laughs> but uh, there is some beautiful symbolism here. Look at her condescension. Look at her lowering herself. Uh, we're finding out in Luke 1, there's a virgin espoused to a man whose name is Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Now that would seem like God is saying, you are, you are one of the most blessed women. That God is elevating her to a certain extent. Okay? Yeah? yeah? Women is a term that wouldn't have been used for her yet. She's still, she's still a virgin. She's still a maiden. Yeah? Okay? So, but he's calling her that, right? Isn't that amazing? The Lord is with thee. That blessed art thou among women. What's her response to that? Cool. <laughs> that, that's awesome. Yay me. <laughs> Look at what she does. She saw him. She was troubled. Well, yeah. And cast in her mind, what matter of salutation should this be? And the angel said, fear not, for thou hast found favor with God. Her immediate response is, behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed. Okay. Now, in the midst of kind of being exalted, something great is about to happen here. What's her response? She's lowering herself. She's, she's, we're dropping into this kind of level of humility that says, um, okay. Um, after she comes back after six months with Elizabeth and she comes back to Nazareth and that, I'm telling you guys that is a, that was a small village in the first century uh, it's all along the hill it's very very small the rock, rock quarry is the predominant kind of thing and so everybody would have known everybody and she comes back obviously pregnant so she's, lo her, she's being lowered in society is what you're saying right Okay. Um, now, I want, there's another lowering that happens here. I mean, the symbolism is just rich. Okay. So, if they're going to start up here, here's here's the upper Galilee up here. Okay. And they're going to make the journey from Nazareth. This is more of a modern picture, but you see what's left of the kind of the rock quarry and everything and. A lot of times we take people up there. We go up to the rock quarry and you can look down and see what you're looking at. But uh, they're going to come from they're going to come from the north. Now, if they're then going to now they need to go down to Bethlehem. Why are they going down to Bethlehem? To, to, to be to be taxed. But why is he going to Bethlehem? Hometown. It's his hometown. It's the hometown of his people. Uh, the, the, the short story, uh, and we, we've gone into longer lengths, but let me just quickly again tell you that uh, when the Greeks 
were finally cast off about 60 BC, 80 BC, somewhere in there. Okay, and the and the Hasmoneans, the the royal family of the Jews, comes back into power. Most of this area up here has been scrubbed of of Jews. It's, it's primarily Greeks, and the Hasmoneans succeed in tossing them out. Okay, and but all of the main families, the the his, the, the people Joseph's kin. The royal families were located down around here. So, so there was, uh, at the behest of uh, Herod and the Hasmoneans, they wanted to go ahead and repopulate the north, because this, what had been there before the Greeks? Ten tribes. They've been gone for hundreds of years, okay? They wanted to repopulate this with uh, Jewishness, Israel. So they specifically asked certain families in the south uh, to, to repopulate themselves in the north. So it would have been like the most devout Israelites that are going to leave the land of their nativity and they're going to go in the north and, and repopulate what had been where the, the, uh, the other ten tribes of Israel had been. Does that make sense? So you're going to get a lot of Judah that will then go up here. And they, were on, and they had only been there a few generations when this is all occurring. So when, when they're asked to be, when, when the census, whatever that was, is being taken, and Joseph's, Joseph's ancestral lands weren't here. Joseph's ancestral lands were where? Down here. So that's why he's got to go down there. That's why, preview of next week, he had family in Bethlehem. <laughs> he had places to go. Do they settle according to tribes into the traditional places for the tribes? No, because Judah didn't have anything to do with the north. They were really taking over lands of Ephraim and, and the other tribes. So they're really just the first places. So they're moving, they're actually moving then into places where Judah had never really lived, Bethlehem being one of those, or, or uh, Nazareth being, being one of those. How does this relate to what's happened in the last 18 years? That is a good question. We'll come back to that. I'm going to punt on that one for a sec. Okay, now, so. So isn't it interesting when when Joseph and now Mary and she's carrying this baby, where are they going? This is guys, this is the Upper Galilee Valley, that are up here, and then they're going to come down here to the Jezreel Valley. How come they don't come here? Samaria. Yeah, we're not going to travel there. It's not good. There's a lot of robbers. Okay, so we're going to come down here. We come down this side. We're going to come back through Jericho. Now, interesting, they will then, the Jericho, uh, if, you, if you stand on the Jericho Road, you can stand there and you can see Jericho sitting down here at the head, at the bottom of the valley. And then you can look up and see the, the town of Jerusalem. You can see it from a, an overlook, okay? So they're actually coming down out. They're going to come through Jericho low. They're going to come up to Jerusalem. 
But then if you're standing in Jerusalem, especially get up on some of the higher levels, you can look down and see the path down to Bethlehem. So basically, if they're going to go from, from Nazareth in the north, they're going to end up in um, Bethlehem in the south. By, by the way, this is the tower at Migdal Eder that's mentioned in Micah. Uh, talking about the temple flock. I think it's Micah 4 or something like that. Okay, That's that guy right there. Um, but anyway, the outskirts of Bethlehem, if they're going from Nazareth, they're really, with the, for the little lump going to Jerusalem, they're going down. From up here to the Judean desert, they are descending. To go down to his birth, they are going to they're going to start up here and they're going to go down. Does that make sense? I don't want to. I just, I just love the symbolism that says they are, even in the birth, they're descending. The whole thing is a condescension. How long a trip is that? Uh, several days. Especially when, if, you're, if you can't go in a straight line, <laughs> and you're coming down here. From up here, when you get up in, in here, like Mount Carmel, and up here in Nazareth, you can look, and this is a low valley. It's a gorgeous valley. Uh, Armageddon is kind of right along there, right? Okay. Is that like 100 miles? Or? It's about 200. 200 miles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a trip. Okay, but it is downhill. They descended down into towards his birth. Now, let me just take this one step farther then, because I really want to kind of do a little bit more of the nativity thing next week, which will be kind of fun. But um, I want you to see that everything about what, what the Savior did and how he did it was about condescension. It was about descending. It was about lowering. It was about be becoming higher and lower. Uh, and I think over and over, I keep seeing the role of women in this lowering process, which I think is just beautiful. Uh, so, let, let me give you an example. Capernaum. One of the Pharisees asked to eat, and he went in with in the Pharisee's house, uh, reclines at the table. That uh, they don't uh, don't give him anything to wash with. Uh, they don't take care of him at all, even though he should be an honored guest. This is not a guest situation. This is an interrogation. The woman in the city, uh, they knew she was a sinner. Uh, she could see that he was reclining at the, the table. Uh, now, in this case, it says brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This is sometimes a mixing of two stories. And uh, standing behind him, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them. Okay? Now, why is she using her hair? She didn't have anything else, did she? She wasn't planning necessarily on doing She hadn't brought stuff. That's why I think the ointment thing here is probably a mix with the other story I'm about to tell. Maybe okay. she thought that when she got there, she could anoint him with the alabaster. Somebody would have already watched. Maybe. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good that possibility was, as well. Sure. Well, Mary's going to copy that in just a second. Okay, because I think it happens twice. Uh, she, she's going to wipe. Now, by the way, if she's going to, uh, I, I mentioned this before, if she's going to wipe his feet with her hair, what does she first have to do? 
She got to take off her scarf. She got to take off her head covering, especially if you're a non-married woman. You're going to be wearing a head scarf. So what's going to happen in the house of a stranger when she unfurls her hair? That's a big moment. Oh my gosh! Have we just stepped over? Are we full pawing all over the place here? But my question is, why didn't she use her scarf to wipe I don't think she. Oh, the one she was holding in her hand. Yeah. I don't think the scarves were wicky. <laughs> I, I don't think they would have done that. Yeah, you know, that is a good question. <laughs> she certainly, it was there, right? She's going to take even a lower route. In other words, she's going to use part of her body, her hair, to, to wipe. That, that's an interesting question. Okay? Now, in doing that in the house of a stranger, I can't even start to count how many laws she just broke. Because you're only supposed to do this for your husband. She's doing it in the house of a stranger. She's taking care of the feet of a stranger that she, that she's, you almost get a sense that she had some connection with the Savior before at this moment. The only people that <clears throat> clean the other people's feet were servants. Yeah. Because the feet's a pretty nasty place if you look at um, those ancient cities. Woo, bad. Okay. So she, she's going to do that. Uh, for him and, and uh, by, by the way the, the side note is do you think she has place in this city after she, after this little event <laughs> probably not I think she probably went with him and we're going to get some indication of that when the Pharisees say this man travels with sinners meaning probably her because where else could she go where else would she go but that okay now interestingly enough when, uh, in the week before his death what, what happens again? Well, in Bethany, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment. That's why I think it may be a mix of stories of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It gets repeated. And, and Jesus, in this case, remember this is when Judas gets offended we could have spent that money on something else, you know. And he goes, no, she's anointing me for my death. She gets something that you guys don't understand yet, okay. But in a sense, did she know about the earlier story? Well, I think some people would claim that she's the same person. Uh, they would. And, and, some, and that, there's a difference. Some scholars say this is the same story. But there's enough. When I look at it, I tend to make it into two stories just because I see the setting of one in the house of Simon uh, the Pharisee as a story and then there's another one here uh, with a specific anointing that's why I think if I was going to leave something out I'm not sure there was an alabaster flask is my own guess um, but anyway she's going to repeat this is the way I, I look at it the way I frame this thing okay the difference is between these two stories it reminds me a lot of uh, a current uh, TV series um, that a lot of people watch a lot of Latter-day Saints watch and, and love and love and it has all kinds of false history and false oh absolutely but it is so inspiring to me yeah that I, I just have to <laughs> look at the flaws and, and say so what you know they're flaws but does this does this sanctify me to watch it Am I, do I feel lifted by this right. the, the, talking about the chosen right you know because you could say Jesus never said shabby. <laughs> Not too shabby. 
whoa, that's not historical. <laughs> no, it's not, <laughs> but it's awesome. Okay, um, all right. So isn't it interesting? We have, I think, good evidence for two stories. This happened, happened again. And then just before the Savior died, what does he do? At Passover. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water in a basin and washed the disciples' feet. Now, he might have, that might have been something he would have done otherwise. I just think it's interesting that the scriptures get a show a woman doing a lowering, a, a condescension. Then there's another one. And then Jesus, in trying to teach a principle to his disciples, he does a lowering. He gets down at their feet. He, he comes from sitting up to on the floor to removing his robe and then he's wiping, he's wiping their feet. Yeah, that's amazing to me. I keep thinking about what she did, whether or not she had a headpiece or not. Yeah. With her hair. And then she is weeping, and she kisses his feet. She has made it such a personal, intimate act in front of all those people. Yeah. I'm not ashamed to do it. Uh -uh. not bothered to do it. And it shows such devotion. Yeah. Love. I mean, I mean anybody I mean, could have wiped, could have cleaned his feet. I'm not putting. Yeah. In fact, Jesus is saying, Simon, you get, you guys didn't do that. Look at the, what she's done. I mean, and then she did it in such a dramatic, yeah, way yeah. That uh, I think it uh, is very. I don't know whether it's supposed to be symbolic of how we're supposed to worship the Savior. You, you know. Would we, would we, if we see the Savior, would we want to do something like, would we kiss his feet? What would we do? You know, but she had such devotion to him, whoever she is, whether or not it happened once or twice. Yeah. It was a very special time. That's why, in, to me, one of the great lines in all of that experience is the moment where he, where he says, you, you haven't done all, all these things for me. Her sins are forgiven. And he goes, what? And he says, she's forgiven because... She has, she's healed, he used the word healed, because she has loved much. That he ascribes that to loving. I wonder if that's like us when we take the sacrament. Huh. Are, we, are we the guy standing there going, like, what's the big deal? Or are we the person who's experiencing the big deal? Uh, I think that's exactly it. I really, really do. In other words, we're getting this sense of do we understand the condescension of God? Do we understand our condescension? If our idea is to be like God, to be God-like, isn't it interesting that the Book of Mormon, in, in speaking directionally, will say the Nephites were lifted up in their pride, <laughs> lifted up in their own eyes, and everything about this is saying, are we descending? Are we lowering? Are, do we, are we coming down? Do we put ourselves at a lower level okay I, I just I just there's a really beautiful lesson here um, that I think we miss uh, Elder Holland when difficult times come we can remember that Jesus had to descend below all things before he could ascend he lowered himself and and God then lifts him up okay he was lifted up 
and that he suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind that he might be filled with mercy and know how to succor people in their infirmities. If we're lowering, if, 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 if well, let me give you an example of this, I think. When, generally when we think about baptism, Paul is going to always describe baptism as we're going to follow Christ into the grave, that we are lowered down into the grave and we come up new as new people. So the baptism is a lowering, if, if you will. Okay. Um, now, uh, Alma, in speaking to Helam, is going to say, if you're going to be lowered, you're going to come up out of the grave to do what? If you want to be baptized, what, what, what do you have to be willing to do? Put away your sins. Well, beside that, mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort. When, when we are lowered, we come forth to mourn with those that mourn. Again, I love the, I love the Jewish idea of Shiva, sitting Shiva on lower chairs <laughs> in darkened rooms where are just like, we're going to grieve. We're going to grieve this thing lower. We get lower. And, and we talk about, do you know the condescension of God? What about our own condescension? What about our own lowering? Is, is a challenge, okay? Um, uh, and I, I was thinking about this, uh, the, the one that I've used before. I just think the plan of happiness is based on whether it's the Garden of Eden or whether it's in the, in the pre-mortal life. We are... We're up there. We are living with God. And then what has to happen for the plan to move forward? We have to, and we even use the word. What do we call this? The fall. We fell from a higher place to a lower place. We have fallen down. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, I, I, remember there's, there's like three rivers in the Garden of Eden, and they're going to flow outward. What does that say to us about the Garden of Eden? It was elevated. If it wasn't a mountain, it was at least a higher hill. And when they fall, they fall spiritually, but they also fall physically. They're going downhill. They're going from a higher place to a lower place. Okay? So we talk about the fall from here down into mortality. And then the idea of mortality then is to become like... To, if we want to have life with our heavenly parents, then we have to learn to love like they love, serve like he served. We have to have, we have to condescend. We have to lower as well. So, does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe you run into this with your practice. A lot. <laughs> the answer is yes. But I read uh, a quote, and I can't remember the quote, but it's essentially those that sympathize and understand and love those who have been through physical or mental trauma have themselves yeah. been through physical mental trauma and that's what makes them more loving towards others. I, I've, I've said on a number of occasions to, to my clients that I believe that if we have some past trauma in our life, it's almost like God gives a compensating spiritual gift of understanding the pain of others. Because those that are more sensitive to the struggles of others 
have the experience with it themselves and I think it's based on the Savior's model of that we've experienced it so we're willing to lower ourselves to somebody down to somebody's pain not because we're better but we're going where they are like, like, like we've mentioned we're, we're going to be there and we're going to be available but that means to mourn with those that mourn if you're down and mourning I get it and I'm coming to you I'll be there with you yeah not only that, but when you actually, you know, listen and are compassionate with another person that's been, you know, going through something, you do take on, if you're that kind of person, that emotional stress. From you can. Feeling. Yeah, I know. I, w- w- one you of the things. Literally help. You literally feel it in bare. Yeah, there, there were times. Uh, I. I Cindy knows this. That there are times when I was working with a population that was really heavily traumatized a lot, and there were a number of times after working with them that we would get done, they would leave, I would shut the door, and I felt like I literally kind of had to wipe some of that stuff off so that I didn't carry it onto the next person because you're so covered in it, and you're working with that, and you're you're right there with them. Yeah, Jeff. So I think uh, Alma that talked about the people who have been forced to be humble and how blessed it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, yeah. it's empathy is the same way. You know, you can have experiences that make you empathetic or you can choose to be empathetic. And you can you can choose to, to relate to other people's experiences, the difficult ones. And... Uh, but sooner or later, if we want to be like God, Christ is empathetic. And so we have to become empathetic. We have to learn to love like he loves. I, I, think, that's, I think that's it. Okay. Now, the, the, battle, the battle that I always fight, uh, I'm trying to figure out, I put it here. Yeah, I did. Okay. Here, here's the struggle that, that I see. Uh, from a mental health standpoint, we spiritually we need to lower ourselves we need to not be lifted up in pride we need to we're raising the selfie generation and we like our face and our dinner so that everybody can know on Facebook what we ate Um, (laughs) but there is such a line between I'm going to lower myself and I already have low self esteem or I have I'm, I'm struggling with depression or something where I'm already in that place and now I need to be even more humble and and there's a there's an interesting dance that takes place in addiction healing uh, I'm grabbing the uh, LDS uh, ARP the, the, the addiction recovery manual working off of uh, Bill W's uh, AA model that when you start off you have to admit you of yourself are powerless to overcome your addictions and that your life has become unmanageable. Now, when, usually when somebody steps into a 12-step meeting, they're already going through heck. <laughs> There's a reason they're showing up at the meeting. Life is not good. If I'm having a great life with no addictions, I'm probably not sitting in a 12-step meeting. <laughs> probably not, right? But you have to admit that you are powerless. Well, that's... I've always struggled with that thought. For years, I wouldn't send anybody to 12-step meetings because I wanted to empower my clients. I wanted them to feel strong and strengthened and stuff like that and to send them to a meeting where they're going to feel powerless. 
means that I didn't get it. <laughs> I, was, I was wrong on this because there's a second piece to this. I have to admit that I'm powerless, step one. Step two says I have to come and, and by the way, in 12 steps, they'll tell you this is three promises for the, this is three jobs for the price of one. You have to come. Then you have to come to, you've got to wake up. Then you've got to come to believe. <laughs> Those are three steps. Um, got to come to believe that the power of God can restore you to spiritual health. I'm powerless, but I, can, I believe that the power of God can take over. So in my lowering, I find myself relying more on a power greater than myself. Um, step three then is I then have to make this decision to decide to turn my will and life over to the care of God the Eternal Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That, that is a lowering. That's a surrendering. That is a, I got to let go. And I got to let Him take over. And we fight that Man, we battled that thing of I got to let go and let him take over. And, and so in 12 steps, he'll say over and over, you got to let go, let God. I don't want to let go, let God. No, you got to let go, let God. Let go. I'm hanging on. Let go. I've got to lower myself to say my way, you know, to, to quote uh, Dr. Phil, and how's your way working out for you? <laughs> how's that going? Well, not so well. Okay, how about you let go? And let God take over. But, but like... Like the people in Lehi's dream, notice what they do when they follow the when they follow the iron rod and they get to the tree. One group gets ashamed and leaves; they were the ones clinging. But the other group gets there, and what do they do? They fall down. The ones that fall down are the ones that partake of the fruit and and don't heed the voices coming from the building. We have to fall down. We have to fall, but it's falling ahead. We're surrendering to move ahead. Okay, yeah. Um, another life. I was going to a counselor who was a Christian, but not a member of our church. Mm -hmm. and I was telling her all my woes, and she said, told me to put it all on the altar. And I love that phrase. Yeah, because in other words, we're sacrificing something. Well, you just all have to admit that you can't do this. Yeah. Yeah, and that means that's why I think the lifted up in pride is always an interesting thing. We've got to come off of our pride thing, off of our uh, Ramiampton, if you will. We have to come down and be willing to then plant that seed in the ground. A seed in the ground is as far from the Ramiampton as it can be. Okay. It's more than pride, I think. I think it's also having to admit that you didn't really fail, but you just aren't able to do it. You don't. You don't possess. You mean like this one? Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. That there is another power that I can accomplish stuff with, but it ain't me. Yeah, yeah. Jim? So, I don't want to... I do. <laughs> it's never stopped you before. <laughs> this addiction recovery thing, it's step one, your life has become unmanageable. I don't buy that because I'm, you haven't I'm an been. alcoholic. Okay. But my life was never unmanageable because I was an alcoholic. The path that I was on was unmanageable. Yeah. And so I recognized that my path was unmanageable. And I didn't have to wait until my life was unmanageable in order for me to recognize that I need to change 
paths, and so... You're not an alcoholic, are you? I am an alcoholic. Are you an alcoholic? I am. Okay. But I don't drink, and I never went to rock bottom. That's why. Because, because I... <laughs> For which we're grateful. I didn't realize my life was unmanageable, but I realized that the path I was on was not a manageable yeah, path. Yeah, I think... Yeah, and, and sometimes I think when we get to this point, it's like that, that gutter level... My life, I've lost everything. I think of, I think of Glenn Beck talking about finding himself in a burned-out hotel room in New York City, having lost his job and his family. He says, I can, today I can either live or die. And he decided, I'll live. I've got to go to a meeting because I can't do this on my own. But, but I think everybody doesn't have to go to the bottom before they can Well, hopefully not. <laughs> That's kind of, I think if we can catch to a certain extent, if we can catch ourselves as we're heading down, we, we self-lower ourselves. But you look at somebody who is like a lifetime meth addict or something like that. Some people do, yeah. Yeah, they're in that place and they're going to have to have something to pull them out. But you still have to get humble and say, i got to do something different. i got to change. Well, I know that I... I can't just decide that I'm going to, you know, have a couple drinks every day. Yeah, you've made a decision to say, my brain works different, and some people might be able to get away with it. I can't. So, yeah. Well, I, I have a brother that lived through this for different reasons, but part of it is his life didn't fall apart, but he wasn't able to control his own choices. Yeah. That the addiction overcame the choice. So his life didn't fall apart, but he realized because of police intervention that he should <laughs> <laughs> sort of Sometimes yeah, to a certain extent, let, let me just kind of wrap up with this because we could we have really good discussion on this when we're running out of time. Uh, I, I really think to a certain extent, though, we all, um, we're kind of addicted to our natural man. <laughs> and our natural man makes it about us. And, and the idea of the condescension of Jesus leading to our condescension means we have to find a way to lower ourselves and accept help and recognize what we can do and what we can't do. And, and, I, and I also think that lowering ourselves means that my job, if I have lowered myself in baptism, is now to serve and love and take care of others as he would and try and uh, understand where they are and bless them where they are and mourn where they are and give them comfort where they are. And, and I think that's a lifetime process. But always we're lowering, always we're descending, always we're... And then what happens at the end? Then we're lifted up. God lifts us up. We don't lift us up, not by our own efforts or anything. We're lifted up to the place because... Uh, I'll finish with this. The, the, most, the moment when Jesus could have actually done this the most is when he was the shining guy coming out of the clouds. And he descends and he comes... And they're there, and they're singing praises to him and everything. And what's the first thing that he tells the crowd? I'm simply doing the will of my Father. I'm on his errand. 
So is it inadequate to mourn for those who mourn? You have to mourn with those who mourn? Oh, I like that. Boy, we could do a whole lesson on that one, couldn't we? That dividing line between I'm going to feel bad for them and I'm going to feel bad with you. That is, that's a manual, right? That's God is with us, not... Uh, I, I like that, Jim, a lot. Um, okay, final comments. Joan? I, don't want, I was going to say something, but I'm asking, are, what is your lesson going to be next week? Is it going to be about Joseph and... And Mary coming down to Bethlehem. You've been a, I'm still about. thinking about it. You're wondering if you're going to you're setting us up for next time. Well, what I Joseph is for a long time has been one of my heroes. Oh, absolutely. And I think he's sort of unsung. Oh, so very much. And uh, because you, uh, you're going, you talked about how they had, you know, she was a virgin, and he had to, he let mm-hmm. himself, and he had to, of course, be convinced by the angel to make, to take care of her, and all that the traveling 200 miles, because that baby had to be born in Bethlehem, and all that, and he, he did all that, if it wasn't for Joseph protecting her. And doing all the things he did, I don't know how all that would have happened. Well, if it if it's any if it helps you at all, he became a saint. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. I named one of my sons Joseph. But, yes, you did. Uh, but, uh, He's I called Joseph know. the Faithful. Joseph the I'm trying to remember what the Catholic Church well, reveres him. Do you hear anything more, more about him after the birth of Jesus? We hear that they go to Egypt, but he's just doing. Yeah. We don't, you know, he's not doing some miracle somewhere or, 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 you know, leading an army, king of anything, you know, getting revelation or what, all these things. You don't or, or we don't even hear about his death. No, we just know he died. We just know he died. But I just, I just had such a uh, love for him. Yeah, that's cool. And what he did and what a good husband he was. Great lead in for next week because that I, I do want to go into more depth into the into that story, but I wanted the and then to also tie it into what happens the sign given to the Nephites of of light that we're going to give you light when the Savior comes. Everybody gets their sign of that the, the Christ has come, and it's interesting that those different signs are, and one of them is a God who descends, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about Tulum uh, next time as well. So. Um, uh, next week, mm-hmm. and, we'll ta- and then to the second week of January. So we'll take a few weeks off through Christmas. All right, uh, bearing my testimony that the the Savior's descending, the Savior's lowering, is our example, and it's probably as hard a thing as we do. There are things that we really cling on to, and we really want, and we we like, and we have to let go of that if we're going to serve Him the way we need to. I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, can I get a... Brent, can we get a closing prayer from you? Thank you. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss... Or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, 
please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.